0: Welcome to Cal St. G. Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to CalvaryStGeorge's.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G. Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. Let me uh, start by asking you to raise your hand if you recognize these names. Allie McGraw, Ryan O'Neill, and Eric Siegel. Well, thank you, because I was with a group Friday evening in Ben's apartment for the Friday night uh, movie night. It was wonderful. And there were folk there of a certain age. And I said those names and got blank stares. So it's of a certain age. Robert, what movie and book are we referring to? Love Story. Robert? <laughs> Love Story. Thank you. Um, back, Love Story, the movie came out in 1970. And what I want to, and that's the one with that famous line: "Love means never having to say you're sorry." Um, that's found in Philippians four two, and um, that was a joke. Um, but what I want to say is that Eric Siegel was not the first person to write the book Love Story. The author of Ruth beat him by three thousand years. Uh, And in this song that I just played, which lots of you know, Going to the Chapel of Love by the Dixie Cups in 1964, um, the chorus of that song really has it right. And it's very scriptural, actually. Carl Jung said that the central neurosis of our time is loneliness and emptiness. And the song says, um, we'll never be lonely anymore, profoundly with Jesus. Uh, But scripture also from Genesis 1 on says that you and I, are not supposed to be alone. So I've got eight days in now of not being alone. Uh, I haven't gotten married last Friday. That's wonderful. Um, What we have in the book of Ruth is a story, and it's a very simple story. Uh, It's not loaded with uh, theology. Um, It's just a a story told in simple language. It's about ordinary, uh, average people. The story has got profound tragedy, It's got extraordinary love. It's got grace. And above all, it ultimately points to Jesus. So this is a a story that takes place in the period of the Judges. And you all remember, you know, we start with um, Moses leading the people out uh, of Egypt into, uh, headed toward the Promised Land, and they're in the wilderness for 40 years. And finally, Moses dies, and Joshua takes the people across the Jordan River uh, into the Promised Land. And there's a period when they're in the Promised Land, before you get kings, you have a series of judges who are ruling over the people. And this, is, this story takes place during the the time of the judges. Um, It was a period kind of like the 21st century in that it was characterized by savagery and lust and war and lawlessness. And in the midst of all of that, we've got this amazing contrast in this story. In this story, instead of war and instead of bloodshed and instead of cruelty and instead of intrigue, we've got love and we've got marriage and we've got faith. And we've got redemption. So, first of all, where does this story fit in scripture? Um, Ben has already led us brilliantly through the first seven uh, books of the Bible. And those have all been long books. Genesis, 50 chapters. Exodus, 40 chapters. Leviticus, 27 chapters. Numbers, 36 chapters. Deuteronomy, 34 chapters. Joshua, 24 chapters. Judges, 20 chapters. And now we come to this little book of Ruth, which has four chapters. And it's a connector to the books that uh, go before and after it. The very first verse in the book of Ruth connects it to the previous book. Because it says, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So we've got that connection as we go into Ruth, and as we leave Ruth in the very last verse, it connects us with some pretty important people to follow, and we'll talk about them um, in just a minute. Um, Who wrote Ruth? I haven't a clue, and nobody else does either. Um, And most of the commentaries all are willing to admit that they don't know who wrote it. Some Jewish scholars point to the prophet Samuel um, as the author, but nobody knows. When was it written? Well, the genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth ends with King David. Uh, So whoever wrote it, uh, wrote it from the time of David on, and David lived around 1,000 B.C., so the assumption is that maybe the book was written sometime around 1,000 B.C. Who's in this book? Well, there's a cast of characters, and let me just run run through them with you for a second. There's this fellow called Elimelech, and he is an Israelite. And the meaning of the names of these characters are important. So Elimelech's name means, my God is king. Uh, There is Elimelech's wife, Naomi, an Israelite. And Naomi means pleasant or sweet or amiable. And then uh, Elimelech and Naomi have two sons. And their names are Malon and Chilion. And their names mean sickness, consumption, sickly, wasting, pining. But then the commentator said, don't be ridiculous. Nobody knows what the names mean. And somebody's doing some wonderful guessing. So you can write it down if you want. Um, Then um, there is Orpah, who is a Moabite. Her name means stiff-necked. Then there's Ruth who's also a Moabite. We'll get to what that means in a minute. Ruth was um, um, Malon's wife, um, and her name means friend, refreshment, satiation, or comfort. And then finally there's Boaz, an Israelite who was Elimelech's nephew, and his name means in him is strength. So those are the characters uh, in this story. The purpose of this book is, as it always is, grace. Uh, in the history of the, of the Hebrew people that we've covered so far in the first seven books of the Bible, uh, God has been faithful, he's led them into the promised land and out of slavery, and again and again and again the people have repaid God with faithlessness. And again and again, God's given them over to their enemies, but then again and again, um, God has raised up for them a deliverer. And that theme is repeated over and over in the book of Judges that Ben presented to us last week. And now, in this book of Ruth, the forgiveness and the grace and the love of God is illustrated in two amazing people, Ruth and Boaz. Both of them, in their own ways, foreshadow the love of Jesus that you and I see in the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of Jesus on the cross. Let me just, uh, before we simply retell the story, look, uh, say a word about Bethlehem, because this all happens in Bethlehem. The little town of Bethlehem is amazingly woven into all of scripture, and it starts all the way back. Uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, where Jacob's wife, Rachel, dies and is buried in Bethlehem. And you can go this day to Rachel's tomb. It's about a five-mile drive from downtown Jerusalem to downtown Bethlehem, and along the way on the road um, is Rachel's tomb. Then um, Bethlehem shows up in this book of Ruth, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Minute. Later on, Samuel anoints David as the king of all of Israel in Bethlehem. And then you remember that the prophet Micah later on um, gives this prophecy. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to rule in Israel, etc., etc., etc. And then finally, generations later, another young man is born in Bethlehem. So, it's extraordinary. Um, uh, There's there's a phrase theologians use called the scandal of radical particularity. Uh, And how extraordinary that we have this scandal that the God who's created the entire universe has decided in this little dinky town of Bethlehem, in this little dinky planet, in this little dinky solar system, to have the savior of the world appear. Well... Ben, as you know, these last few weeks has done the thousand yard view and then the hundred yard view. Um, let's just forget the thousand yard view uh, because the hundred yard view is really juicy and it's just the story itself. Uh, so I simply want to uh, remind you of what this story is because it is so wonderful. So we've said we're in the time of Judges. Um, we are in Bethlehem, uh, which uh, is, as I said, about five miles from Jerusalem. And on a clear day, if you're in Bethlehem or Jerusalem and you look east, what you do is you look down, because you're about 3,000 feet above sea level in Jerusalem. You look down the east to the Dead Sea, the lowest spot on the face of this earth, about 1,100 feet below sea level. And then on the other side of this Dead Sea in the east, rising up are some mountains, and that's Moab. Uh, Today it's the country of Jordan. And a lot happens in the first five verses of this book of Ruth. Let me just read to you the very first verse. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So, there goes Ben phone. Oh, ben, the screen is cracked. No, it's not. No, no, no. Um, so, we've got Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Chilean and Nalon, and they're all living in Bethlehem, and then there is a famine. And it must have been a pretty severe famine to cause them to leave the country of Israel To go live in a country which was looked down upon uh, by the Israelites. The Moabites worshipped um, a pagan god named Chile. No, that's not right. I got it written down. Where is it? Um, Chemosh. It was a a pagan god named Chemosh. And that's who the Moabite people worshipped. So it really must have uh, been something to cause them to make this move. The Moabites, by the way, were descendants of Lot and his incestuous union with one of his daughters. So, kind of an interesting contrast between the Israelites and the Moabites. But that's where they went. Uh, And they got to uh, Moab, and they settled down, um, and then um, Elimelech dies. And so all of a sudden, right away, you've got an Israelite woman, Naomi, without a husband. And in those days, and in that culture, for um, a, a woman to be a widow meant that she didn't have a protector, that she didn't have a means of, of, of support, of living. Uh, and if you've got all that plus being in Moab, um, it gets a little dicey. Fortunately, she had her two sons, and for 10 years, uh, she lived with her two sons, Um, And her two sons then did something extraordinary. They married Moabite women. Now, in the early days of Israel, there weren't Mosaic laws restricting marriage uh, to women uh, of other uh, countries and and nations that were not worshiping the true God. Uh, Later on, it got really strict. Uh, But it still must have been a little iffy for one of them to marry Orpah and the other one to marry Ruth. But they did. After 10 years, Naomi's two sons die. I mean, this is we're talking Job-type stuff here. <laughs> this is tough. In a foreign land, um, no husband, her, all of her kids die, and she's got these two daughters-in-law who are not Israelites. They're Moabites who worship this pagan god. So, Naomi says... I'm going to go back to Israel. Um, I've got to go back there. I just have no means of survival. And so Ruth and Orpah go with her uh, to the border of Israel as a kind of gracious way of wanting to support her. Uh, The text seems to show that they're being a kind of an escort. Um, And when they stop, um, we get one of the crucial central scenes of this book of Ruth. Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth to return uh, to their people. Let me read to you verses 8 and 9. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. And then she kissed them and they wept aloud. This book is just loaded with graciousness and mercy as she's sending these two daughters-in-law, aliens whom she adores, uh, to leave her so that she's going to go back all alone to um, her home. What faith Naomi has, this wonderful, wonderful woman. So this is the moment of truth. I mean, it's the time for these women who love each other and who've been through so much to say goodbye to each other. I mean, just... Picture a time when you've loved someone profoundly and you're at an airport or somewhere else and it's goodbye for a long time. The daughters can't handle it, Orpah and and, uh, Ruth, and they say that they want to go with her. But Naomi says no, and she's wise in saying no because she knows it would be hard for them, Moabite women, to come and live uh, in Israel, that they wouldn't be uh, welcome. Uh, Naomi says even if Naomi got married again and uh, she had sons by her new husband, uh, she still, Orpah and Ruth, couldn't hang around to wait for those sons to grow up so that they could marry uh, them and become, um, have them as their husbands. Naomi also speaks honestly where she says, the hand of the Lord has turned against me. I mean, what honesty for Naomi. She's totally up front, that at this moment, it feels like God's against her. Where, where is the Lord, and life is awful? And yet, as with Job, where Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So this woman experiences the abandonment of God, and yet she remains faithful to God. This is an amazing woman. So Orpah finally says, okay, um, I will stay in Moab. And then the spotlight turns on Ruth. Then comes one of the most magnificent declarations of loving loyalty to be found anywhere in the literature of mankind. I mean, I have heard these words read at a hundred weddings, including eight days ago at my own. 3,000 years after Ruth spoke these words. I mean, here's this, this woman on the border with Israel, this little woman, I mean, isn't the I wish I could go back and say, "Hey, Ruth, guess what? Three thousand years from now, millions of people are going to hear what you're about to say um, at weddings." These words rise, as one commentator said, "These words tower as a majestic monument of faithfulness, rising supremely above all the prosaic platitudes of a thousand libraries." And the King James, I think, does it wonderfully. Entreat me not to leave thee, and to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part me and thee. So, Ruth and Naomi head off to Bethlehem. And they are welcomed. Uh, The verse, uh, when they arrive, says, the whole town was stirred because of them. And Naomi's obviously somebody who was known in Bethlehem and loved and admired. And so she is welcomed home, even as she's bringing home um, this Moabite woman with her. Now, Chapter 2, let me read to you verses 1 and 2. Now Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I may find favor. And Naomi said to Ruth, Go, go. My daughter. Not my daughter in law. Just go, my daughter. So it's the harvest season in Bethlehem. Ruth wants to be helpful with uh, her mother in law, Naomi. And so she wants to go glean in the fields. Now, the law of Moses had some very strict rules about gleaning. There were rules to protect the rights of the poor, um, and it's uh, rules for how the poor people could follow the reapers uh, in the gleaning. You could not send reapers a second time into the field. Um, I mean, has anybody here ever gleaned? Well, I have. I mean, years ago, I spent a year living with my sister in Northern California, and one day a bunch of us went to a vineyard after the machines had gone through collecting all the grapes in the vineyard. And we got permission, and they let about 15 of us uh, go through the vineyard collecting all the grapes uh, that were left. And we came back with buckets and buckets and buckets. And uh, my sister actually had um, one of those uh, wine presses, a big wooden one like this in her backyard. We poured all the buckets in. We took off our shoes and our socks. Some of us washed our feet. And, and we got in and we stomped all the grapes. And out of it came the juice. And I remember my brother-in-law, I shouldn't tell you this, but so when Ben's talking about your enemy, um, you know, my sister divorced my Brother-in-law bought the jerk. And, um, you know, you know, that's my person that I struggle to forgive with. And this was a long, many, many years ago, but he was not good to my sister. And so that's, that's you know, where I struggle. But back then, um, when they were still married, he then bottled the wine that we, we stepped on, and he let it age for a good six weeks before we drank it. And it, I mean, it was straight vinegar. It was disgusting. But... Um, <laughs> At any rate, so this is what Ruth is doing. Uh, She's going through and and getting um, the harvest that the first reapers missed. Ruth ends up gleaning in the fields belonging to this fellow Boaz. And as the day goes on, Boaz shows up just to see how his workers are doing, and he spots Ruth. And he says, Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, to whom does this woman belong? So Boaz goes up to Ruth, and he speaks to her. Now listen to this narrative. It's so beautiful. It really, it doesn't need any commenting at all. Just listen to this. Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but cleave close to my young women, Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped and follow behind them. I have ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds, and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to refuge. You know who Boaz is? Let me just remind you that in the genealogy of Jesus, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, five women are listed in the midst of all the men. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Rahab, a little bit earlier, was not an Israelite. She was a prostitute living in Jericho. And Boaz is a descendant of Rahab. Jesus has a really juicy family tree. And this plot is thick and juicy. Boaz is also an amazing guy. Just look at all the things that Boaz does. He instructs Ruth to glean in his field and no other field so that she can stay safe. He commands all the young men among his laborers not to touch her. He tells Ruth to remain near his own maidens and to do her gleaning following them. He gives her the right to quench her thirst at the common drinking place. He offers a special prayer for her that Jehovah would grant her a rich reward for what she's done for Naomi. And to all of this, then you've got to add um, the things mentioned in the next paragraph. He invites her to eat with the other harvest workers. He takes pain to give Ruth a special portion of food, so large that she's able to take part of it home to Naomi. Boaz then instructs the young men harvesting his barley to, to help Ruth by purposefully leaving some grain for her to glean. He instructs the men not to hinder or embarrass her in any man whatsoever. And finally... That men are instructed to neither rebuke, or nor to reproach her. These actions by Boaz are loaded with the greatest significance. I mean, we can only wonder what Boaz, uh, how he was inspired and prompted to champion the cause of Ruth, this grieving daughter of a foreign people. Maybe the chief motivation for Boaz was inherent in the fact of her conversion to Jehovah, mentioned in the first encounter. Jehovah, the God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to take refuge. Boaz was impressed with the fact that she'd left the land of her nativity, and you wonder if he was reminded of Abraham, the great ancestor of his race, who left his native land and his kindred in obedience to a divine commandment. So whatever Boaz's motivations, his actions upon this very first encounter with Ruth are altogether sufficient. One cannot think of anything else that he might have done. So that evening, Ruth goes home and says, Naomi, let me tell you what happened today. And Naomi says in verse 20, Blessed be him by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a relative of yours, one of our nearest kin." Now, Naomi is a sharp cookie. She sees that Boaz's interest in Ruth has opened up some possibilities. (laughs) And Naomi's fertile mind has already jumped to the possible eventual solution to all their problems. So in chapter 3, it gets really R-rated, except it doesn't. It could, but it doesn't. Let me explain. Let me read you the first four verses of chapter 3. Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, I need to seek some security for you, so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See? He's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But, do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Are you listening? When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then, Go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. Now if that got your attention, (laughs) let me read you a few more verses. Verse 7. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, and he was in a contented mood, don't you love it? He went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then Ruth came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled and turned over. And there, lying at his feet, was a woman. This is not the Bible. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich, and now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are, the wor- are a worthy woman. By lying at the feet of Boaz, Ruth was presenting herself as a humble petitioner for his protection. It really is her proposal of marriage, and spreading your skirt or your cloak is a method of proposing that still exists in some Arab, um, among some uh, uh, modern Arabs, according according to some commentaries. One commentary says this: in this possibly the finest of biblical love stories, certainly the sweetest. There's no burning heedless passion. There's no ardent or flaming cauldron of desire. It never says that Boaz finds Ruth beautiful or that she finds him handsome. Sexual attraction, attractiveness, has no place here. I mean, it may have been here, but it's not a part of this story. We are given an account of one tender heart's courtship of another. Both, Boaz sees in Ruth a self-sacrificing devotion that bespeaks a true likeness to God. I mean, there's lots of different kinds of connection between me and Hilda, um, but I have seen and see in Hilda a self-sacrificing devotion that bespeaks a true likeness to God. I'll bet you a trillion dollars that Jacob sees in Melina, a self-sacrificing devotion that bespeaks a true likeness to God. The commentator says, the one he would, he would marry is like unto the one whom he worships. So, now we come to the last chapter, the fourth chapter. Uh, there's one more issue uh, that needs to be dealt with because there's another man in Bethlehem, he's never named, but he's more related to Naomi than Boaz, and that means he's got some certain rights. Naomi is selling the land that belonged to her husband Elimelech, and that means that this other fella is entitled to have the first rights to buy the land. So you're going to love what Boaz does here. First two verses of chapter 4. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there Then the next of kin, this fellow not named, of whom Boaz had spoken, came passing by. So Boaz said, come over, friend, sit down here. And he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Boaz is creating a legal situation like a courtroom where some legal business is going to be done. Um, He tells this fellow who's not named, that if he buys the land, there are some conditions. First of all, if he buys the land, he's got to take care of Naomi. Naomi is his responsibility and Ruth. They come along with the property. Secondly, he's going to have to marry Ruth with the stigma of marrying a foreigner who is a Moabite. So in verse 6, the fellow says, I cannot redeem it. Uh, which translated today means, man, (laughs) I can't afford this. So what does the fellow do? He takes off his shoe and gives it to Boaz. Now don't ask. Uh, It simply was the symbolic means back then of sealing the bargain. Boaz was buying the land along with the right and obligation of marriage to Ruth. The end. Except... Not really. Because you and I are children of Ruth and Boaz. We're all heirs of this woman and man of all seasons. Because the last verse of the book of Ruth tells us that Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed. And later on, Obed has a son named Jesse. And later on, Jesse has a son named named david king david whom god calls a man after my own heart and later on as you know david has a son and his son has a son and on and on until generations later in the same little town of bethlehem another child is born thanks for tuning into this episode of cal saint g academy All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live. Or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.